Leadership. All my life, I've been fascinated by what makes a good leader. Are good leaders born or made? Can leadership be taught? How do leaders lead if people don't trust to even listen? I grew up in Arkansas. Now I live and work in the innovation heartland of Northern California. During these last years of constant crisis, I've thought more deeply about what leadership is and what it takes to lead people, especially when trust is in limited supply. That's why I decided to create this podcast and reach out to changemakers from different disciplines to hear what they have to say. As the host of this show, the most important things I can do are two things I learned in medical school, to ask good questions and then listen. Hello, I'm Lloyd Miner, Dean of the Stanford School of Medicine, and welcome back to the Miner Consult. It's a privilege to welcome this week's guest, the accomplished science author and journalist Carl Zimmer, who might just know how to get people to row in one direction as the world tries in year three to put the COVID-19 pandemic behind us. Carl has expanded our concept of life on Earth and the importance of science through his 14 books that include coverage of heredity, evolution, neuroscience, the viruses running rampant on our planet, and even what it means to be alive. His most recent title, Life's Edge, was named a New York Times notable book for 2021 and also appeared on my personal book list of recommended reads. It's my pleasure to introduce a prolific writer and thought leader, Carl Zimmer. Carl, thanks for joining me today. I'd like to start by digging into how you got into your chosen field. You earned your bachelor's in English from Yale in the 1980s. Did you always know you wanted to pursue science communication as a career, or what inspired you? No, not at all. I mean, I feel very lucky that I kind of uh, backed my way into science writing. Um, I always enjoyed writing when I was young. I'd you know write you know comic strips or little stories and so on. Um, in college, I you know interned at our local newspaper, did various things. So I had hazy ideas of what I would do when I grew up. Um, I always liked science, but I didn't really think that science was for me. <clears throat> so I didn't major in it. I just took classes about science in college because I found it interesting. Um, so it was very fortunate that a couple years out of college, um, when I was looking for a job um, at a magazine, it just so happened that the magazine that hired me to be an assistant copy editor was a science magazine, Discover Magazine. And that's where I really started to realize what a fascinating world scientific research was and how much fun it was to write about it. What do you find most gratifying about the writing that you do and about your professor about your profession and what also is the biggest challenge for you? Well, um, I, I there there's always something uh, new to write about. There's always something that um, kind you know takes you by surprise. There's a scientist somewhere who is just wants to understand the world a little better and comes across something that they didn't anticipate. And when you read about it, you say, wait, really? Um, <clears throat> so so th there's just an endless amount of fascination in this job. Um, you know, certainly the, the, the challenge then is, um, well, to first to really understand what a scientist has done or scientists, and then 
perhaps the bigger challenge is to actually tell a story about it for a broad audience, um, for people who haven't done the research and haven't even like spent the time that you as a writer have spent trying to understand it. So, you know, it's a challenge I can, you know, every, every day when I sit down at, at my desk, that's a, I still face that challenge. You grew up in a political family with a father who represented New Jersey in Congress. Uh, and it feels like politics has become increasingly balkanized since then. Is this your sense of our current environment? And if so, what's your prediction about the future? Um, you know, things certainly have changed, I will say. I mean, you know, my father is, uh, was a Republican congressman, you know, a Republican president set up the EPA. You know, my father was able to talk in Congress about things like global warming and not be considered a heretic. Um, yeah, so now things are things are very different, and science it's, science become has has increasingly become you know a, a real battleground for um, for ideology and how people identify themselves. Um, I suppose I. I, I this is familiar ground for me because, uh, you know, when I was starting as a science writer in the 1990s, um, I really liked writing about evolution. I, I just found the science fascinating, the research, the fossils people were finding were amazing. Um, and that brought me face to face with, a, you know, with the creationism movement, um, a very well-financed, well-organized movement that was trying to get school boards across the country to... Um, "Quote unquote," teach the controversy, uh, and uh, so that I feel like that was a bit of a, a, a hint of where things would be going. Um, you see a lot of a lot of things that happen in terms of the politics of climate change or of the pandemic coming out of the same playbook now. Yes. Now, five years ago, you said something that today feels sadly prescient. Uh, you described democracy, science, and journalism as three valuable institutions that have made life far better than it would have been without them. But you also said we can look back through history and see how in different places and in different times, each of these pillars cracked and sometimes fell. You went on to say we should not be so smug when we look back at these episodes. We should not be so arrogant as to believe that we're so much smarter or nobler uh, that somehow we're immune from this. Uh, that was five years ago. How do you feel about that statement today and uh, and about the future? Well, I, I said that um, right when the Trump administration was getting off the ground. And I think that over the course of the Trump administration, we saw um, such a tremendous um, attack on uh, scientific integrity. Um, and there's really no other way to put it. Um, you know, scientists being <clears throat> censored at the Censor Center for Disease Control about the pandemic, um, the president um, redrawing a weather map to to try to uh, pretend that uh, a hurricane went someplace it didn't go. Um, it, it it unfortunately uh, lived up to my my fears, and you know. That administration is gone, um, I, and you know this current administration is not doing those sorts of things, which which is a relief. But um, I think that uh, you know I, I I feel like there was some some serious damage done, and I, I am concerned about the long term. And and we should look back at um, history 
and look at how science um, and journalism and democracy, you know, have been have been um, undermined in, in the past. Um, and uh, you know, um, if you look at a uh, um, different societies um, where you have, you know, uh, the, you know, the early Soviet Union had a had a actually had a magnificent scientific uh, system, which uh, people like Lysenko destroyed. Um, you know, in Germany, uh, you know, there was a it had a, a scientific enterprise that was uh, the envy of the world, which then was gradually corrupted in the 1930s um, with Nazi ideology. Like these things happen, and to somehow pretend that that uh, anyone is immune is incredibly uh, presumptuous. We have to be on our guard at all times if we recognize the values of these things. Long before COVID, you tackled the topic of science denial, once writing that attacks on science are, in a number of cases, well-funded campaigns. What did you mean by this, and what can we do or have we done to combat it? Well, you know, if you look, for example, um, when the, the science of uh, health risks from tobacco started to emerge, um, tobacco companies put together a, a very well-funded operation to cast doubt on that. And they actually, um, you know, co-opted some scientists uh, and basically just created a lot of doubt. Say like, well, we're not sure, need some more research and so on. Um, and this was a way to extend the time that they could be making profits off of uh, cigarettes. In other words, killing people. Um, this is all extremely well-documented. Um, and... You have seen this play out uh, uh, repeatedly, and um, and so, uh, for example, with climate change, um, you would have fossil fuel companies who, you know, themselves were uh, running research in the 1970s and 1980s that clearly demonstrated that that putting fossil fuels in the in the atmosphere was going to cause a global catastrophe. So they saw that. Um, and then they uh, proceeded to fund um, more efforts to to cast doubt on the science of climate change. Um, so so we see this again and again, and it's uh, it's a it's a very dangerous uh, thing. And and we those those these things need to be exposed, uh, and we need to recognize when science is is being corrupted. What are the similarities and differences between? the campaigns that you just talked about and what has been going on in, with COVID-19? Well, you know, certainly, um, you know, certainly uh, public health has been, you know, a, a, con a contested uh, ground for a very long time. And, and so, you know, if we, and if we look at just, you know, vaccination and inoculation, you know, even when, um, you know, Boston wanted to get people inoculated against smallpox, you know, there were riots, there, there, there were huge demonstrations. Um, and so, you know, there, there is certainly, you know, authentically, you know, some social con conflict about um, these sorts of decisions about public health in a, in a pandemic. Um, However, when you when you find that there are um, you know that there are you know wealthy organizations who are systematically you know funding uh, uh, you know 
campaigns to to ra to raise doubt about you know uh, about well settled science or about or, or to to uh, uh, promote you know uh, questionable statements about you know vaccines for example um, again you you do need to be concerned of, uh, about what's going on there and that that also you know we journalists need to be reporting about those things. How have you seen the role of journalism change during COVID? Certainly data that I read indicate that your, your own uh, uh, newspaper, the New York Times, uh, I believe subscriptions have gone up significantly. How, how have you found, found your readership to be engaged during COVID? And do you think the changes are going to be permanent or what role will journalists play moving forward compared to in, in the past as, as science denialism and other related topics are confronted? So, you know, I was writing about viruses, about vaccines, um, uh, about pandemics before COVID. And uh, there were, you know, many of my colleagues were as well. Um, and, you know, we, we were doing it because we felt it was important. Uh, but, um, you know, I, I don't. I don't think uh, we very often were sort of treated as front page news. Um, uh, and you know, we at the time, you know, we had we, you know, a number of science writers and medical writers. Um, thinking of everyone from Helen Branswell at Stat to uh, Laura Garrett at Foreign Policy. Uh, there were just lots of people who were who were writing about the uh, the weaknesses. That were present in our public health system, that were going, were putting us at risk when a, a pandemic came. And uh, and you know I and others would write about uh, the the inevitability of a pandemic, just from what we were coming to understand about viruses. You know, like so that you know scientists were learning about. Coronaviruses, for example, the SARS outbreak, then the MERS outbreak. Like it was clear that coronaviruses had the ability to to spill over, and uh, and you know there were things that needed to be done about that. And there were scientists at the time who were saying like let's let's develop coronavirus vaccines. Let's develop vaccines that might be effective against any coronavirus. And they would get a little bit of money, and then that money would dry up, and that was it because coronaviruses just weren't considered important. So, um, so suddenly we're here, you know, suddenly the pandemic comes and it was very disorienting for us as, as reporters, because suddenly, um, we were the front page news, uh, almost every day. Uh, and, and, uh, so it's been hard. And I mean, certainly, you know, I've certainly been writing, you know, much more, uh, for the New York times than I, I, I have in the past, just, you know, just, there are just weeks where just like many stories just. Uh, I end up writing. My colleagues as well have been writing up a storm. Um, I don't know, you know, I, don't, I, I do wonder what the sort of the long-term impact of this experience will be with all this attention on, on science journalism, on health journalism during the pandemic. I mean, you know, people want this news and, and we're trying to give it to them as best we can. We hope that people will continue to think about these issues um, when things get better, you know, when we're speaking now in February, Omicron cases are going down, you know, I expect that, you know, our spring and summer could be 
pretty pleasant, honestly. Um, and uh, that's great, but um, we can't then pretend that the pandemic is gone because the virus is still here and there could be a new variant and so on. So, so now in the spring and the summer, we'd be exactly the time that society as a whole should think about, well, what are we going to do? How do we bolster our systems? What do we, you know, if the, if there is a, a variant fueled surge in the fall or winter, what do we do now to get ready for it? Um, and uh, so it, it would be tragic if, if all this focus on, on, on pandemics and on viruses suddenly went away because we were just tired of it. We were just done with it. Um, that shouldn't be the way we think about it. You're an adjunct professor at Yale. And in the young people that you teach in your courses and that seek you out for your advice on, on their careers, are you seeing more interest in journalism and science journalism and, and how to present science to the public? Are you seeing greater interest in light of the pandemic than you did before? And what in general your, are your thoughts about the future of, of science writing and science journalism? Well, um, so I teach, I teach uh, science and medical writing at Yale, and I always have a mix of students. So some are um, students who uh, are thinking about becoming journalists or, or some type of writer. Um, others are actually science majors and uh, pre-med students who are planning on becoming doctors, and they want to make writing and communicating to the public part of what they do as, as scientists and as doctors. I think both of those are incredibly valuable, um, both both ways of approaching science. Um, you know, it's just, honestly, you know, the, the the world of journalism is is hurting right now. Um, you know, there there are lots of of small study newspapers that are on the verge of collapse. Um, you know, there are many news deserts in the United States. It's really tough, and journalists are not getting paid well. So, you know, lots of journalists are, are just walking away. Uh, and it's, it's really a tragedy. I mean, I, I'm grateful that the New York Times is thriving, but it would be absurd to, to think that, you know, a few newspapers like the New York Times could serve the needs of the country as a whole. You know, we need good coverage in St. Louis. We need good coverage in Billings, Montana. We need good coverage everywhere. And um, that's increasingly disappearing. So, um, you know, <clears throat> I don't want to discourage students too much from that. I want them to be aware of the serious situation. It's still an incredibly valuable thing to do, but it's a tough, it's a tough field to get into. And you know, we need to be thinking about um, some long-term um, solutions um, now that sort of traditional newspaper journalism just isn't working as a business. Understood. As we contemplate this transition from the pandemic to endemic COVID, what are you thinking about it as you're planning your writings on the topic and the scientists you're talking to? What are the ideas that are percolating up? And you mentioned before about how do we get prepared for what if there is another variant in the fall or the winter? Uh, what should we be doing now? What are you learning from those you're talking to and reading um, that uh, – that you can convey to us today? Well, um, you know, th there were some, you know, really valuable lessons that came out of the pandemic that, um, you know, we, we could, we would do well to, to follow up on. 
So, um, for example, um, it was we actually now have um, a drug, uh, Paxlovid, <clears throat> from Pfizer, which um, which actually is extremely effective, uh, and and you know appears to have very few side effects. You do have to be cautious about drug interactions, but. Um, and that, and what's amazing about that was that that was pretty much, you know, started from scratch at the start of the pandemic. You know, that kind of drug development is extraordinary. That's incredibly fast. So how, how did they do that? Well, they, you know, they got to know this virus really well on a molecular level, and they just, they, and they just focused intently on developing a drug. Um, now, that's not enough, you know, because there will probably be Paxlovid resistance sooner or later. Um, and, you know, we will probably be even better off with a cocktail of drugs. And maybe we can bring this approach to other, um, other kinds of viruses that might lead to new pandemics. You know, what about a phylovirus or something like that? So, um, but you need a, you need programs in place for that to happen. I mean, you can't, you know, we don't want to just, sit around and wait for the next pandemic to happen and then respond to that pandemic by inventing a drug in record time. I mean, Paxlovid was really, was really in, invented in, in, in record time when you look at similar drugs like that. But I mean, think of all, you know, the millions of people who died by the time um, it got through. So, you know, it is interesting, like talking to scientists who are trying to, trying to really seriously think ahead to the next pandemic and do the work now for antivirals, for vaccines as well. You know, it is amazing that vaccines were created with, and, and then authorized within a year of a pandemic. But again, that's a year. Um, so how could we have pa uh, vaccines at the ready? Could we have vaccines that are actually effective against a wide range of coronaviruses? Um, there's a, there scattered research going on that now it's not very well organized honestly but um but that's an important area as well that scientists are talking about one thing i've admired about your writing over the years is is your ability to take complicated scientific concepts to distill them and then to present them in a narrative in a story that's compelling that's understandable that also is rigorously scientifically accurate and I'm wondering, are there particular topics or areas that that are that are more challenging than others for you to write about or convey? And and you've covered the whole gamut, Carl. You you've talked about complicated statistical concepts. Uh, you've covered the intricacies of, of viruses and and a passion, as you described, of yours over the years, evolution, and now uh, the genomic components of evolution and what genomics is teaching us about evolution. So you've you've covered broad scientific landscape. Uh, and I was just curious if, if, if there's one area that's more difficult than the others or more er, one area that you feel more passionate about and how that influences the topics you choose to write about. Um, when I was starting uh, out as a science writer, so I was at Discover Magazine, um, and, um, you know, when you're, you know, an assistant editor there, you don't really get to be very fussy about what you write about. You just write about what your editor tells you to write about. <laughs> and um, that was good in the sense that, like, I had to write about a wide range of fields. And so you do learn how to, like, 
figure things out quickly, how to kind of help scientists to get scientists to help you understand what the gist is of what they're doing. Um, you know, because you, you can write about things without like having, you know, an advanced degree in that subject, as long as you are trying to really understand the basics of it in a, in a meaningful way. Um, that also meant that I got to try out a lot of different areas. So I was, I was actually drawn to evolution and um, sort of natural history. And, you know, I, I sort of see viruses and medicine as sort of an extension of that. Um, I did write about physics and about math as well early on. Um, I found those to be really hard. Um, and, you know, the hardest thing was just that there was no there was just, I, I really struggled to find ways to connect what made sense, you know, in a series of equations into language, into metaphors, into things that people could really understand. Um, and so I, I sort of, I, you know, I would shy away from, from those sorts of, of stories myself. And, you know, I'm, and I'm really, I'm always very impressed by people, say, like Sean Carroll uh, at Caltech, who are just so good at um, at getting into the complexities of you know uh, quarks and protons and so on, or superstring theory or what have you, and um, and can really like share that excitement uh, in that in that rigorous way. Um, but you know, fortunately, there's no end of stuff to write about in biology, so I'm I'm fine. <laughs> <laughs> I think you will be for for many years to come, given. Uh... The overall interest in, in biology and life sciences and the importance. What do you think will be the enduring lessons uh, as we move, hopefully sooner rather than later, from a pandemic phase to an endemic phase for COVID? What will be the enduring lessons for society coming out of the pandemic? Um, well, I think that, um, I hope that, that people will recognize that pandemics are not um, a theoretical risk. You know, again, there have been scientists warning about exactly the sort of thing happening for 20 or 30 years. Um, and um, it was hard to really get a lot of focus on it just because it just, it kind of felt like an asteroid, you know, hitting the earth, you know. It, yeah, we know asteroids have hit the earth in the past, but that's not really gonna happen, right? <laughs> so it's happened. We've had our, our medical asteroid hit, and um, you know I, I just hope that people recognize that there are a lot of more asteroids floating around out there, and um, and you know it's not just you know the the scientific um, uh, infrastructure that needs to be strengthened to to work on vaccines and and antivirals and such. Uh, you know, we also need, um, you know, public health systems to be strong. Um, you know, we, we, you know, we, you can't, you can't have a, a totally new disease sweep through and, and have understaffed hospitals where people don't have the equipment they need to stay safe. Um, that's just, that should never happen again. Um, and, uh, you know, we need, um, you know, for surveillance, um, it's all well and good for, you know, a small, wealthy, uh, university-focused country like, like Denmark to be really good at, at tracking all the variants that they're encountering. Um, that needs to be in place everywhere. You know, we, we, we have, you know, huge parts of the world right now where 
we know that the coronavirus is replicating and nobody really knows what variants are, are out there. Um, so, you know, with the Omicron variant, we, you know, we, we scientists in South Africa came across it, as well as Botswana, they came across it because they had a good sort of random sampling system in place. You know, that if you, if you go to other parts of Africa, Asia, and uh, South America, like, that doesn't exist. Even the United States, our, our system is not very good. So, um, so, you know, these are all the things I hope uh, going forward that we take as lessons from this pandemic. There are a lot of things we could have done. Uh, we had some great successes. We need to replicate those successes. And there are a lot of things that we really failed on and we need to do better on um, for future pandemics, but also for this one. I mean, like we're not out of this pandemic. People keep talking about, oh, we're going to be endemic soon. And I just don't yeah. buy that. And, you know, how, how are we going to know when that next uh, SARS-CoV-2 variant is coming? Exactly. We'll know exactly. it if we have global, really good uh, variant monitoring. And we don't have that right now. Do you see progress in that regard? You describe some areas some where there has been progress. But uh, how far away are we from having the type of, of monitoring that that you just so eloquently described? I'd say there's been modest progress. Um, so in the United States, for example, um, uh, things have ramped up. Um, so things are things are better now. I, I wrote a very uh, a critical article in the New York Times um, when the first variant, uh, Alpha, uh, showed up you know, in um, January 2021 in the United States. And all these scientists are saying, like, we are flying blind. You know, we, this thing is here. We don't know exactly where it is. We don't know how fast it's growing. We need, we need systems in place. And, you know, the Biden administration did put in um, a, a few billion dollars of investment. And so things are better in the United States, but they could be, they could still be better. Uh, and not only that, but um, we need, we just, this needs to be global. And, you know, it, it's not, it's honestly, it's not that expensive. That's a frustrating thing. I mean, these, you know, it's amazing that um, we can, that scientists can sequence viruses. Um, it's, an, it's a scientific triumph. And what's even more amazing is it's not that expensive to do it. Um, so you can set up these systems pretty inexpensively, but it takes organization and it takes leadership. Uh, and so, you know, in South Africa, in Botswana, like they've got their systems going and it's, it doesn't cost them that much. Um, that could be replicated in every country. It really could, um, it, but it would just take efforts. Now the Rockefeller uh, um, Foundation and other organizations are trying to make global systems, trying to encourage global systems to be put in place, but they're not there yet. Understood. What are the most important attributes of leadership in a crisis and how do leaders need to communicate differently in a crisis than when it's not a crisis? Um, you know, I, um, it's an interesting question. I mean, I, I suppose, you know, my responses would not be here, not be based on like precise science. It would have to be more kind of intuition. Um, it does seem having watched the pandemic play out that um, people need, uh, people need honesty. In other words, um, you know, uh, there was a CDC official in February, 2020, who said like, this is, 
this is going to get bad. Um, and she was promptly uh, never heard from again. Um, that, that kind of, she was completely right. She knew she was right at the time, in, in, and in hindsight, you could see she was right. So, you know, people needed to know that, that, that things were going, were going to be bad, but not to feel helpless, like there were things that we could do. Um, and uh, so, you know, if, so there needs to be leadership that sort of gets beyond being scared about making people upset. Um, there also need, leadership also involves communication in the sense of being able to communicate what science knows at that moment. Um, this is a challenge I think that leaders have whenever science comes into play because I think a lot of people think that science is a somehow a, uh, deals in absolutes, you know, so that scientists know things to be absolutely correct and, and once they know that nothing ever changes. Whereas, um, you know, science is always about trying to come up with the best explanation that we can at this moment, you know, given the evidence we have, given the tools we have to understand things. It's, it's a status report. Um, and that can change. Um, and there can be like legitimate scientific debates about the evidence at hand. So, you know, um, there, was a, there was a serious debate about the effectiveness of masks in early 2020. There were a lot of different factors there. Um, and, you know, and then things evolved. And so that, you know, uh, advice about masks became firmer and firmer. And now some people said like, oh, well, you lied to us about masks. So leaders need to be able to um, help people to understand the nature of the evidence that they're looking at and how they're making these pol po policy decisions and, you know, just prepare people for, for changes. That's hard. That's very hard. And, and, you know, people just want things on and off. Um, and, you know, we're honestly, I think we're at a point now where, where leadership has to, you can't, you know, I, I feel like, like, lead, you know, leaders like governors and so on just want to put COVID behind them. Um, just say, oh, no one needs masks anymore. Like, oh, it's fine. And like, that is just not the right kind of advice. I mean, first of all, our cases are still, relatively speaking, very high. They're coming down, but they're high. And, um, you know, you have to, you have to be thinking ahead to this fall. Like, what is going to happen this fall? Like, how are you going to uh, use policy to save lives this fall if we're dealing with a new variant that is evading vaccines that is maybe more severe than Omicron? Like, what are you going to do? Um, that's going to take some real leadership. Absolutely. How could scientists do a better job at communicating uncertainty? You just gave a very eloquent description of the scientific method and what what we actually do as scientists and what we don't do. Um, and in general, we're, not, we're, we're, we're trying to establish the truths based upon the evidence and the data we have at the time, but that oftentimes changes in the future. But I have a sense at times we don't do as good of a job as we can and should in communicating the level of uncertainty with which we work as scientists. You help us as a, as a journalist uh, to do that, but how can we be more effective? Well, I, 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 um, I, I, I wouldn't, I don't think scientists should put pressure on themselves that somehow they should immediately, like instantly be able to communicate effectively about complicated things, um, you know, just overnight. Sure. Um, 
it's it's a little bit like saying like um you know i'd really like to play the trombone so um what do i do to play the trombone i mean and, and it's like well okay i can tell you like well you blow into this thing and you move the valves around like but like you're not going to just be able to like you know read the instructions and start playing a trombone at least not very well at first it takes time it takes time it takes practice um it takes training and uh, scientists uh, in training, science majors in, uh, in undergraduate college or graduate students in science, they do not get trained in how to communicate to a wide audience. Maybe they get a little bit of training about how to write a scientific paper, which is not writing for a wide audience. Maybe they get, ta taught, get given a few tips about how to speak at a scientific conference, not talking to the public. Um, so, you know, I, so I, I think that, that the, the question, I would redirect the question to say like, what can the scientific community do to better prepare its young scientists yep. for this challenge? And I would say, you know, um, get, have people doing this, um, repeatedly, um, you know, have, you know, like when I, you know, I teach a workshop for science graduate students at Yale and I say like, Okay, pick out any paper and explain it to me. Tell me the story about this paper in six or seven hundred words. And I, you know, like a lot of times, I just don't. They try their best, and their first attempt, I just don't know what they're talking about. It's unreadable, um, and you know, and I don't. I but, you know, I, I again, like it's not. I, I'm not condemning them for sure. that. It's just that they, this is, this is, this may be the very first time someone ever asked them to do that. Understood. Well, you're doing them and I think the entire scientific community a service by, um, by those types of sessions and, and educational endeavors. I, I have to ask a question. I, I understand there's a tapeworm named after you. Could you give us the story on that? How did that come about? And, uh, um, yeah, tell me more. Sure, it's a Catherbotherium zimmeri, and it's a little, it's a little tape. People think of tapers as being really long, but there are a lot of little ones. Uh, this one is one that lives in a, um, a relative of sharks uh, in the uh, in the Pacific, um, and um, so I wrote a book about parasites called Parasite Rex, uh, and. Uh, it's uh, it's a very you know a very creepy and gross book, but it's also um, a very strong uh, argument that I try to make that parasites have been neglected and have been underappreciated. And that you know parasites have actually won the game of evolution. You know there are far more species of parasites on Earth than free living species. They're incredibly sophisticated. They're not degenerates. They um, are really remarkable, and we can learn things from parasites. So, um, uh, and so there have been, you know, a few, you know, practicing parasitologists who have told me that, you know, they read that book in high school or in college and that sort of gave them permission to, um, to you know, to, to turn their fascination with parasites into a career. And so there was a one uh, graduate student who um, had enjoyed reading my book and then when it came time to name some tapeworms that she was doing for a PhD she ended up naming one after me um, you know it's it's not you know it, it's fun to, to have uh, 
to have a species named after me. But honestly, like, there may be, uh, I think in the last episode, estimate there might be 30 or 40,000 species of tapeworms uh, left to be described. There are a lot of tapeworms out there. So, <laughs> uh, you know, it, once we get to name all the tapeworms on earth, like it'll be much less of a, of a special honor. <laughs> These have been challenging times for everyone the past uh, two plus years. And, and you've been at the forefront and enlightening us, Carl, keeping us informed and um, and through your brilliant writing, uh, helping us understand uh, what's going on. What, what gives you most hope for the future? And I guess in general, how are you feeling about the future? Um, I think, you know, I, I, I don't think uh, that we can afford to be uh, complete pessimists. Um, I think we have to be optimists or things aren't going to get better. Um, I, um, you know, with, with this pandemic, obviously this is the thing that really like stands in front of us as, as the major challenge of, of our time. And, you know, I, we have, we have certainly been able to see, um, things that we can do to, um, be ready for, to, to better address this pandemic and to address pandemics to come. So if, so, so I feel optimistic in the sense of like, I think we know some of the things we need to do. So now we just need to do them, which is not a small thing. It's going to take a lot of political will. It's going to take a lot of organization and focus, sustained focus. Um, you know, unfortunately, you know, uh, as a science writer, you know, starting in the 1990s, I was, you know, like other science writers, I was writing about climate change. Um, and honestly, like, you know, the, the science of climate change was, um, the basics were very clear then. Uh, and we were writing about uh, how scientists were understanding climate, the cl how the climate works, and we're trying to look forward to figure out what was going to happen if we kept uh, emitting fossil fuels. Um, now we're starting to live that future. Um, and so that, you know, that is really disheartening. And you know, we're, we've sort of baked in um, a lot more climate change now because we just, we're not shifting fast enough away from fossil fuels. Um, on the other hand, I never would have imagined that, you know, the price of uh, solar panels or, or, or would it be getting so cheap. Um, you know, electric vehicles are about to cross over and, you know, we could be looking at electric vehicles as being dominant soon and that's that's amazing and that so those things give me those things give me some hope we have to we have to figure out how to avoid pandemics in the future we have to we have to figure out how to save the planet from um, a sixth mass extinction and we have to put the brakes on climate change those are the th I, I would say are like you know three of the major um, science related challenges uh, that our species faces I think we can meet all of them but it's going to take it's going to take commitment absolutely well Carl thank you very much and thank you for listening to this enlightening discussion with acclaimed writer and journalist Carl Zimmer if you haven't already I encourage you to check out our other minor consult podcasts with guests like historian John Berry, former Secretary of State Condoleezza Rice, and film producer Jennifer Todd. And as always, I'd love to hear from you. Please send your questions by email to theminorconsult at theminorconsult.com 
And be sure to check out our website, theminorconsult.com, for updates, episodes, and more. To get the latest episodes of The Minor Consult, subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you listen. And if you enjoyed today's episode, please rate the podcast five stars. Your feedback helps make this podcast happen. Thank you so much for joining me today. I look forward to our next episode. Until then, stay safe, stay well, and be kind.